16, verse 21 through the end of chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 21 through chapter 17, verse 20. Um, I had no idea what to title this sermon. I think ultimately I settled on a part two as it relates to justice, as it relates to the glory of God and his divine revelation. I have in, my, uh, in, the, in the bulletin, I've called it evidence that counts, but that's not, that's like a Tuesday morning title where I'm just sort of moving through the text and I'm trying to summarize it in my mind and I'm trying to settle on something This is really about God's clear revelation and how we receive it as part of and an expansion of the fifth commandment. So as I'm reading, I want you to think about how this is case law, an expansion of the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and your mother, which is really a call to honor all authority, starting with the Lord. Deuteronomy 16, beginning in verse 21, you shall not plant any tree as an Asherah, that's an idolatrous thing, beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear it, Then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your town that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. Verse 14, 
when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. That's Deuteronomy. Approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes by doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. As far as the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we wish to live. I cannot imagine there is a person here who wishes their life could be short, But either out of fear or desire to experience all the things that life has in store, we wish to live. And you have given us very clear instructions how we are to walk if we are to live. We are to honor rightful authority. And to do so with every intention of honoring the one who sits upon the throne in heaven. Oh Lord, may we be such a people who love authority who see it for what it is, as a means of promoting and preserving righteousness that we might dwell in peace all the days of our life. O Lord, may we be such who submit well, and for those who lead, lead well, all for the glory and honor of your name, we pray. Amen. Uh, The reason why I had some trouble deciding what to preach is because this is an incredibly rich text. Now, it may not seem that way on first blush because I guarantee you, most of you got stopped in your tracks by the capital punishment sections of this particular text. What? Put to death? Stoned? Uh, Part of that is uh, the softness of the age in which we live. And part of that is because we do live in an age in which Christ has come. And there are certain requirements and punishments under the law that have changed Because Christ has come not only to reveal mercy, but to promote in an even greater way the role of the church in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The giving of the Holy Spirit manifests in such a way that even as Paul is writing to the first Corinthians, he's writing to a group of people who probably would have been stoned for their sexual immorality. And yet Paul says, such were some of you. But the gospel has transformed them. But still, how are we to order society, our lives, the church, in such a way that we do not erect any kind of thing next to the altar of God? That is, the rightful way in which God has said, this is how you are to worship me, and we are to obey as a, as a, as a keeping of the fifth commandment. 
We are honoring the primary authority in heaven. How are we to order religion and justice in such a way that we do not bring alongside of true worship that which is idolatrous, corrupting, and the bringing of death? That is what I want to talk about this evening under two points. The first, nothing mixed, nothing mixed. And then second, pure worship and true justice. Pure worship and true justice. Now, under this first heading, nothing mixed, God has said time and time again, Yahweh, who Jude later calls Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, has given to Israel the law that they may know how to live, to order society, and to govern the church. And he has given them this law that they might please him and be pleased with him and have peace wherever they go, especially in the land of promise. And there is a primary theme within all of these laws. One of those laws is you want to take different kinds of uh, fabric and weave them together. And you may say, my poly cotton blend shirt is the softest shirt I own. I will never give it up. Well, in the Old Testament, you could not have such a garment. Now, they weren't making shirts out of Sprite bottles then, right? But you were not allowed to take one fabric, wool, and weave it with another for a very clear reason. You, Israel, are to be unmixed. You are not to mix with the nations of earth. And as this garment is pure, so you are to be pure. There were clear outward helps until the coming of the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And what makes us pure now, yes, even you tri-blend shirt wearers, is the Holy Spirit. Right? So go wear your jeans with your 2% spandex. You can do it. It's all right. And not only that, but you can eat your jeans with your 2% spandex while eating bacon and shellfish. Because all of those laws were meant to point to Christ. They were meant to show us how we are to be pure and undefiled before the Lord. Nothing is to be mixed in our religion. And in order to have a religion that is welling up, overflowing, and running down so that we and others are blessed, we are to commit ourselves wholly to the Lord. That is the connection between the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, and taking directives from God, how we are to worship him, and the fifth commandment, this the kind of the, the legal hinge upon which the two tables are connected. It's what connects the first and second table. The fifth commandment moves us to our obligations with God, to our obligations to one another. That's the fifth commandment. And so Deuteronomy 16 and Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 15, they sort of begin to blend together and to bleed into one another. And there is this principle. You shall not plant a tree that is a cultic symbol, a religious symbol to another God, another religion right next to where God is to be worshipped. Don't do it. It's like the unfaithful husband who goes to meet his mistress and he takes off his wedding band. 
you see that scene in a movie, and it means something visually. It's visual storytelling. The taking off of the ring indicates what? The violation of a sacred covenant. If you bring before the Lord your idolatrous whoring, he is offended by that. That's God's words, not mine. I'm not seeking to be controversial for controversy's sake. This is a word that God uses over and over again against Israel. And for this reason, can you imagine if you were to walk into the narthex one Sunday and there's a little table out in the narthex, which is just a fancy word for small hallway, and there's a Buddha on a table. And we say, from now on, at Reformation OPC, uh, before you enter into the sanctuary, you need to light a candle and leave your offerings there in the basket to Buddha. Or some multi-armed Indian god. You would rightly go, oh, I can't believe it. But oftentimes we come into the sanctuary of God and often in our hearts in the middle of worship, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about uh, the Monday that's coming. Uh, We aren't even devoting ourselves holistically to the worship of God. God knows who we are. And we are constantly erecting either physically or in our hearts idols to foreign gods. He takes it very seriously to the point that he forbids it. He says, don't bring that garbage nearby me. I don't want to see it. And it isn't just, don't just bring it within a, well, we all know about the six foot radius, right? Don't bring it near. Don't get it anywhere near me. And he's not just saying physical proximity. The Lord is saying the tendency is to mix pure biblical worship with the invention of the human heart. If you ever see me up here doing liturgical dance one Sunday, you will know that I have violated Deuteronomy chapter 16. And not only is it an offense to your eyes and rhythm, it is an offense to God. So you've also heard this phrase, the regulative principle of worship. We do what God has told us to do. Now, we do not always do it perfectly, but we are endeavoring to worship as God has instructed And the consequences of this idolatry are quite severe. And I guess this is probably where you went, I hope no unbeliever ever reads Deuteronomy chapter 17. Do you ever think that about the Bible? I hope my unbelieving friends never read this part of the Bible because I have no idea how to explain it. Here's my encouragement to you. Don't apologize for Scripture. Seek to understand what it means and then lean in on those passages where unbelievers have the greatest problems. Because if you can confront them with their greatest issues in Scripture, what God will do is he will break them of their spiritual pride, hopefully. So that's what we got. God says, do not do X, and if you catch someone doing it, they are to be stoned. Now, the emphasis on this passage isn't the penalty as much as it is the nature by which you arrive at this. How do you know they are worshiping a false god? And it's this. Upon the testimony of three or two witnesses. Not one, right? This is two or three witnesses. For what reason? So that the truth may be out. So that the truth of what has happened may be clearly communicated. 
God wishes for the religious practices and worship of his people to be pure and undefiled, as, are, as does he wish the testimony of men to be pure and undefiled. It is very important that we arrive at the truth as to whether or not someone is keeping the fifth commandment in relationship to God. Now, here's the thing. If you're the witness, you have to throw the first stone. Now, the reason for this is because if you have lied, then the blood guilt is on your hands. And if it is found out that you have lied, guess what? You have given up your life. Your life is forfeit. Now, what I'm not saying is that Elder Monteith and I are now going to institute a process by which that if you're caught blaspheming the Lord, we're going to bring you up here on a Sunday, and even as we baptize kids up here, we're just going to start throwing stones. <laughs> God desires for his people to be jealous for two things. The glory of his name and the purity of society. And when I say society, I mean the gathering of his people who bear his image. Not just in the church, but as neighbors in a society. God wants his name to be exalted. Now, there is a fate worse than death for those who blaspheme the name of the Lord. And it is what? Canceled on Twitter, right? No, that's not it. Logged out of your face. No, it's hell. And the reason why we often make such a deal about death is because we don't actually believe in hell. In fact, the scripture even says that for those who are God's children who can't stop sinning, God will, out of his mercy, keep them from sinning by killing them. It's a mercy sometimes. Parents, have you ever, when your kid is absolutely, I remember when I was a kid, I was, <laughs> I threw a rock up in the air to impress my father, way up in the air. And I looked at him and it came down right on my head. I still have the scar. If you want to feel it after church, um, six feet, please just keep six feet away from me. No. What? I got to go to the hospital in my uncle's Porsche. But then when I got to the Porsche, I realized they were going to put a stitch in my head. And I went berserk. So do you know what they did? They got a papoose. You know what a papoose is? It's a board with Velcro straps, and they strap you down. Now, I was upset initially. How do you think I felt once I got bound up and I'm in these Velcro straps? I mean, it was like CIA black ops torture stuff. Two stitches. Two stitches. I should have just... Calmed down. There are times where God will, for the sake of a people who are crazed with their sins, bind them through discipline. They have lost their minds. And God wishes to protect his people. And he has given it to us to do the protecting. There can be no idols erected in our hearts. We must give God and God alone glory. God wishes then for a faithful testimony to be bubbling to the surface, not only in the practice of worship and religion, but as we live together, we are to be concerned with 
how we keep the fifth commandment. That leads me then to my second point. And it is here that it moves on in verse really, 8 and following to two issues um, that are also part of the fifth commandment. In verse 8, um, I'm sorry. I want to look at verses 2 through 7 a little bit longer as it relates to um, this sort of capital punishment. The first uh, we see as it relates to pure worship and true justice. Uh, in verse 5, re- let's look there. Then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. Um, there is a public nature to discipline. Uh, and the reason for the public nature of discipline, either in the church or in the state, is to do what? If you see someone disciplined for a sin, what is the oftentimes natural result of that? You think, um, I, don't, I don't want to do that. Uh, there used to be a time in this country where you would have public hangings. And not only would you have public hangings, but those who were about to be hanged would give some kind of testimony, in a sense, an appeal. And if you weren't apologizing, they would just go ahead and cut you off. And that was that. But oftentimes what they would do is give the criminal an opportunity to confess what they had done. So that those who were standing there might be warned not to do what they had done. Don't rob the stagecoach, right? That kind of thing. So these people were to be executed in public only on the testimony of two or three witnesses. We see the principle in verse 7 that the witnesses shall be the first against him, but then the entire people are to stone them. Uh, these weren't good days in Israel, right? Oftentimes when unbelievers get a hold of these passages, they think, you guys are just so violent. These are the same people that support abortion on demand. So let's just remember that these are the kinds of people that we're often arguing with. What we have, obviously, because it's God and his word, is punishment that fits the crime. But look at the reason. So that you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, many people will say, well, that's the Old Testament God's way of dealing with sin in the camp. Let us remember that it is the same God who died upon the cross that gave us Deuteronomy chapter 17. And he didn't have a personality disorder between the Old and New Testaments as some sort of schizophrenic. Christ is seeking to establish order And the way in which you establish order in society is you, as much as you can, endeavor to purge evil from your midst. Let's remember that earlier, as Christ was revealing the nature of the sabbatical year, the point was to eradicate poverty. But here's the problem. As soon as you eradicate one area of poverty, another pops up. There is a continual call to deal with sin. Right, parents? Once you discipline your kids the first time, they never do it again. That's usually what happens in our home. We basically have perfect children now. They've gone through the entire list of all the sins they could commit. And so now, no. I mean, I've had this conversation. Did we not just talk about this yesterday? Oh, I don't know. No, we did. You were there. I was there. Were you there? This is the nature of God dealing with sinful people. And it is the continual call to purge evil from your midst. That's why we confess our sins every Sunday. And why you ought to confess your sin whenever the Spirit reveals it to you. We are to honor God. We are to keep the fifth commandment. 
Now, let's move to 8 through 13. If there are cases that are too challenging to require, or that are too challenging so that local guys can't handle it, they are to essentially run it up the flagpole to wherever God has said, let's look at verse 8, if any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult to you. So if your local magistrates or priest can't handle it, you are to take it to the Levitical priests or the judges that God has chosen. This is a higher office kind of issue. And you go to them, and you go to both the priest and the judge. Now, let me say this. Our founding fathers in this country are not the first to establish this principle, this separation of church and state. Now, the separation of church and state does not mean the separation of a secular state and a spiritual church. No, the state and the church are to be under the one law of Christ and his rule and reign. Both spheres of authority that have been given different responsibilities, guess who they both answer to? God. The problem with the state today is who do they answer to? The people. They're not under God. They don't see themselves under God. And so if they're answering to the people, then they are by definition utilitarian in the laws they write and enforce. We see that today. Whoever controls the spin pushes forth the state. That is not the kind of governance that God desires for us to have. This is not a sermon on politics, lest we lose our tax-exempt status. This is a sermon on how every sphere of human life is to be ordered by God's law as we all are called to keep the fifth commandment. And so if you, let's say, something happens that a local magistrate cannot handle or a local priest cannot handle, then you go to a higher court and there they decide. The priest decides something and the judge decides something. And you have to follow both orders. And if you do not, guess what? If you brazenly disregard what they have said, and what do they say? The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest... Listen, verses 12, this is verse 12. Who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. When the priest or judge speaks, who is he speaking for? Not the nation. God. It becomes a very clear fifth commandment issue. Now remember, remember the promise that is attached to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long. The inverse of that is clear. If you dishonor your father or mother, God will take your life. He will shorten the days of your life. Obedience leads to lengthening. Disobedience leads to shortening. Here is a testimony of how that promise holds true. If you throw off divine authority... If you throw off righteous rule, you die. Your life is forfeit. God does not tolerate rebellion. God does not tolerate rebellion against rightful, divinely installed righteous authority. Why? Look again. 
so you shall purge the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. Priests, therefore, should know the law as well as judges. And so a priest makes a declaration concerning sin, and a judge makes a declaration concerning sin. And whatever that declaration is, is to be followed. Now, here is the problem that we American Christians have. Here it is. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. You have just built a tree by the altar of God. And that tree has your name on it. And you are bowing down to your own autonomous authority. That tree needs to be chopped down. And you need to surrender to the rightful rule of God and those whom he has established in authority over you. Was that too blunt and too brutal? I hope not. Chop that tree down. Tear down that high place of spiritual autonomy and surrender to the rightful rule. That does not mean that all rulers are righteous. But the default is what? To acknowledge that there is someone in authority over you and God will bless you as you submit. And it isn't just you, the common man. Guess else is also called the submit. Let's look at the last section, verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you from whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. This is just simply establishing how it is that kings are chosen. God has no problem with us choosing a king. The problem is the kinds of kings we choose. Saul was a king like the nations of the earth would choose. Now, we're not to choose a foreign king, which is we are not to seek an unrighteous ruler over us. But rather, we are to seek a godly man, a godly ruler. And even if he is chosen, there are some things that a king ought not to do. In other words, you commoners are to keep the fifth commandment. But even those with the highest title in the land are still subservient to God who sits upon the throne. They must also keep the fifth commandment. And this is how they do it. They do not multiply their own name by multiplying in excess weapons, women, or riches. They are not to make unholy truces with pagan nations. They are not to build up their armies to such an extent that they can say this. It is I. It is I who will win the battle. Remember what happened to David when David went out and started counting his soldiers? And God rebuked him for his pride? There's nothing wrong with taking a census. Remember the rich man who kept building better barns? There's nothing wrong with being rich. What was the problem? The rich man said... To his soul, I take comfort in these things. Remember Christ and his rebuke of the rich young ruler? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Our seeking confidence and strength, in other words, what a king is doing when he builds up his army is he is erecting a tree right there by the altar of God. He's established an Asherah. 
He is mixing true religion with self-righteousness. And not just weapons, but women. Now, who is the great case for what you should not do in the Old Testament? Well, there's a lot of them. There are not actually a lot of great men in the Old Testament where we can say, hey, be like that guy. Daniel was a good one. Joseph, and maybe a handful of others. What about Solomon? Would you read a marriage book written by Solomon? (laughs) How to get 700 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, maybe, you know, polyamory is really in right now. He violated God's word. Now, why would a man do that? Well, why wouldn't a man do that? I guess is more the question. A man does that because he looks at that woman and says, I want that. In the same way he wants guns, he wants military might, he wants to establish a false sense of safety for himself, he also wants to establish a constant stream of never-ending pleasure. And not only that, but wealth and riches. We see this in verse 16 and 17, the one about war and horses and military might. Verse 17, and he shall not acquire many wives, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. Wealth is a killer of spiritual affection. There is nothing that gets you praying quite like poverty. When you are in need... You tend to say, Lord, I need. And God loves to hear you come to him with your needs. Kings are to be needy. I don't mean codependent wimps, beta males. I mean those who understand their throne is under the throne of heaven. And the way in which they are called to do that is, look at verse 18, when he sits upon the throne, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. He is to do Deuteronomy. He is to write the law down. He's to be a biblical commentator. He's to journal the Bible. And he is to read the law, write down how he understands it and what it means so that he can take that and in his own words apply it to himself and the kingdom. And he's to read it every year for the rest of his reign. And the priests are to make sure that the copy that he's written is good. Can you? I mean, when was the last time there was a presidential debate where they compared their copies of God's word? And they were asked a question by MSNBC. Can you please show us how you sort of interpret that difficult passage in Deuteronomy 16 about killing the person for false worship. What do you think Vice President Harris would say? Right? What do you think Donald Trump would have said? Well, I know he would have said his copy is the best, right? To add a little humor. Of course it would have been the best. But the goal, the whole endeavor is to say, ah, my throne isn't the throne. It's not the high throne. My throne is the little throne that sits next to God's throne. That is how we are to see ourselves. That wherever we are, high or low born, wealthy or poor, 
Whatever our station in life, our call is to surrender to divine authority and in the way in which divine authority, authority is manifested on earth. And kings aren't exempt from it. In fact, kings are held to an even higher standard. Don't build your idol next to the altar. And here is how God helps you tear down that idol. He invites you to his house to reveal to you the pleasures that are found in his house and to show you how you have not worshipped him as you ought. Because the end of a life that continually violates the fifth commandment is not just a shortened life, perhaps, but an eternal life of misery apart from God and delighting in his glorious rule as the only king in heaven and earth. What is the benefit of devoting yourself to the law? And when I say law, do not hear me say something apart from grace. But that which is sweet, the psalmist says, that which gives understanding, look at verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted above his brother's, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Do you know what will shorten the life of Reformation OPC more than anything else? If we as a body neglect the law of God. And do you know what will give us a long life? Availing ourselves of the truth of Scripture and seeking to govern our lives by God's holy word. Liberal churches don't last long. Orthodox churches, and I don't say just because it's in our name doesn't make it true. Orthodox churches endure for centuries. That is the promise of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we do ask.